Hello and welcome to this issue of Voices of Africa. I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Lee White, Minister for Water, Forest, Oceans and the Environment, and you're accountable to the President, I know, for Gabon's climate plan. Big portfolio held by Lee White in the central West African state of Gabon, a post that he's held now for 18 months. Lee is unusual in as much as he was born British, born in Manchester, and just over 12 years ago became a naturalized Gabonese citizen. He spent his life working on conservation and a keen proponent and advocate for environmental change. He has participated in many of the big fora representing Gabon over the last decade and probably a little bit before that. And now, having been an advocate and in some respect an activist, he's now very much in a position of authority to run a big portfolio in a country that has built a reputation for its leadership on issues of environment and climate. So welcome, Dr. White. Thank you. So tell us, you've been in government now as a minister for 18 months or so. How's it been? Has it lived up to your expectations? Well, I'm not sure I ever expected to be a minister, so expectations. It's been quite thrilling. It's in many ways, running the national parks for 10 years was pretty good preparation for being a minister responsible for parks and many other things, because managing parks is about managing the threats which are related to people. And so whether it's local communities or international poaching gangs or the threat of climate change or illegal fisheries and so on and so forth, I feel like I had a 10-year apprenticeship before I became Minister of Forestry. I worked with this ministry for 30 years. So whilst I never was ministry employee, I was associated with the ministry and have worked probably with 20 or more ministers of forestry over the years. In terms of expectations, I think it's pretty much as I expected. No, no great surprises for you. It's a portfolio that you've shadowed on and been a participant in really for, for a very long time in the way that you've mentioned. But the context has changed, hasn't it? The operating context. We're in the midst of COVID and there's been a much sharper focus from my observations in terms of the needs to manage interactions between the human and, and natural worlds. We've seen real concerns around food chains and you know the whole genesis of this coronavirus linked as we understand to bats in open markets in in China so that's obviously of some of some concern but also i think there's been a much keener focus on the environment and climate change specifically would you agree with that observation and how has that affected your work i think covid has crystallized somewhat thinking and discussion on our relationship with biodiversity the sad reality is we have quite a short attention span as human beings. So, so the same thing happened with Ebola in Gabon 20 years ago. We know that there's a clear relationship between biodiversity and disease because disease is part of biodiversity. And if, if we go into highly complex biodiverse ecosystems and trash them, then all of those tiny bits of biodiversity inevitably are looking for a new home. So they come out of the forests and into the urban jungles of this world and, and infect humans. So the idea that we should rethink our relationship with nature, we should we need to nurture rather than aggress nature, I think is certainly out there. And people are definitely playing lip service to that. Thought that we should 
try and bring together the climate change discussion and the biodiversity discussion. The fact that we're in a kind of a mega extinction phase in terms of biodiversity and we're in a desperate fight against climate change. Also, and, and those two things are linked because climate change impacts biodiversity and biodiversity is one of the best ways to fight climate change. So, so, so I think COVID has helped that discussion. There's some hope that in 2021, between the COP16 on biodiversity in China and, and COP26 on climate change in, in Glasgow, we can bring those discussions together. I think we've been both lucky and I think naturally protected to a certain extent. And I think we've also managed the COVID crisis fairly well in Gabon. We, we cut international travel very early. We posed curfews and closed restaurants and bars and so on and so forth. But we did keep the forestry industry going all the way through that. I think we've been luckily and naturally protected in the sense that we're a young population. We have we live a lot outdoors. It's a hot, humid climate. And there are an incredible number of coronaviruses circulating in our wildlife. We think that this you know, COVID-19 came from bats or from bats and a combination of bats and pangolins in Asia. Well, our bats have got many, many coronaviruses. And, and I think perhaps the fact that not just in Gabon, but across the equatorial Africa, we seem to have been less impacted by this disease is partly the young population and partly I think there is some natural resistance playing out there. As we look at forestry and forests, the fact that we have a young population helps us to resist COVID-19. We've only had one death in the last four months. But as we look at our young population with 50% of our people under the age of 20 in school, in university, even before school, even though we have a small population, we're going to have to create jobs for that 50% of the population over the next 20 years. And we are about 2 million. So that makes about a million young people who are going to be looking for jobs, or maybe let's say 750,000. We're still a society where many women you know, dedicate themselves to a family rather than, than to jobs. But where are 750,000 jobs going to come from in Gabon, a country where there are only about 200,000 jobs today? And in an economy where oil inevitably over the next two or three decades is going to be phased out of the global economy because of climate change, renewable energy and, and electric cars and so on and so forth. So we have this huge challenge to, to replace oil in the economy, but also, but really the biggest challenge is to create 750,000 jobs. We're not going to do that, obviously, in the oil sector. We never have. We're not going to do it in the mining se sector because mining is is about big industrial machines. And so yeah, increasingly automated. We might create tens of thousands of job jobs in the mining sector because there's plenty of potential in terms of mines. It might well increase significantly in the economy, but it's not a job creator. What can create jobs is forestry, perhaps forestry and agriculture, the two big ones. And when we look at Malaysia, Malaysia has about 21 million hectares of forest. We have 23 million. They have 320,000 jobs in their forestry sector, and we have 27,000 jobs. And they have a forest economy of about 6 billion US. Ours is about 1 billion US. The big difference between us is that they have really focused on 
second and third level transformation. They're making furniture that they export and so on. And, and they've supplemented their natural forests with plantation forests. And so it's a bit simple just to say, we're going to copy that and everything will be okay. But we see that as, as a sort of guiding principles so that we need to move towards third level transformation and we need to supplement our natural wood with, with cheap, fast-growing plantation wood. When, when I look at the history of Gabon, forest economy, we started exporting timber in 1888, I think it was. The first Akume trees were shipped to Hamburg in Germany. And for 110 years, we shipped logs out of Gabon to the rest of the world. When you ship logs, you capture about 3 to 4% of the value, potential value of timber and of the potential job creation of that timber, 3 to 4%. So for 110 years, we gave 96% of the value of our natural resources to France, Germany, Belgium, Europe, China, Southeast Asia, the US. Today, what we're trying to do is to, to push for second and third level transformation. The president took the decision 10 years ago to ban the export of logs. It wasn't perhaps surprising that President Sarkozy arrived at Gabon two months later to try and convince him what a bad decision that was because of all the jobs they were going to lose in, in the wood processing industry in, in Normandy. We've multiplied our jobs by about a factor of three, our economy by a factor of four because of that decision. But we're still exporting about 90% planks, basically, and first level transformation. And that, that generates about twice as many jobs as the old forestry industry did. And, and it allows us to capture just under 20% of the potential value of our wood. But, but every plank I see going onto a ship is... is you know, a opportunity I, I for you. see I'm losing it. It's 80% of the value being lost and gifted to some foreign economy off the continent of Africa. It's not just that we're sharing yes. with our African brothers and sisters, but we're giving all of that value to, to Asia and to America and, and, and to Europe. So you know, we, we have a vision now to continue to grow this local forestry industry, move from first to second to third level transformation, increase our production through plantation forestry. And as a conservationist at heart, I'm looking at that and I'm thinking about how do we use this forest industry to maintain, to save, if you want, forests of the Congo Basin? Because the Congo Basin is integral to the global fight against climate change. Sadly, the Amazon is suffering more from climate change than Africa. The drought and the heat is killing more and more trees in the Amazon. The Amazon is shifting to becoming a carbon source, to a net emitter of CO2. Whereas the African trees, even though we're starting to see differences in their biology, they're still growing. They're still stocking CO2. And so Africa is one third the size of the Amazon. It's one half of the carbon stock of the Amazon. So we stock more carbon per hectare in Africa than in the Amazon. And we are equal approximately now in terms of carbon sequestration. We're absorbing as much CO2 out of the atmosphere as the Amazon today. And in 10 years' time, they will be about zero and we will still be absorbing. So if we're going to deal with climate change, we have to maintain the Congo Basin just in terms of carbon. If you start to think about the implications of what happens if we lose the Congo Basin, 
particularly the example that hits me hardest is if we lose the forests of our sea, because in, in many ways the Congo Basin is divided by the Congo River between kind of east and west. Gabon and Congo and Cameroon make one block and DRC is the other block. DRC, deforestation rates are up to 1.8% per year. So, and it's increasing. So we're going to lose the forest of the DRC, just as we lost all of their elephants over the next 40 to 50 years. That happens, we lose the rainfall, much of the rainfall in the Ethiopian highlands. And so Ethiopians will lose their agriculture and their water. Beautiful dam they've just built will probably not be very full. And if we lose the rainfall in Ethiopia, we lose the Blue Nile. And the end result is 100 million Ethiopians moving into the Congo Basin as climate refugees, and 100 million Egyptians moving north into Europe as climate refugees. And the same argument we now know applies to the Sahel. If you lose Gabon and Congo, rainforests, you lose the rainfall in northern Nigeria, and you've got 100 million Nigerians moving south into, into Gabon and, and Congo. So if we don't deal with climate change, and if we don't preserve the Congo Basin forests, then Africa will be destabilized with hundreds of millions of climate refugees. It will be Armageddon, basically. COVID-19 will be is just a minute speck on the impacts that climate change could have on this continent over the next 20, 30, 50 years. And so we have to find a way to maintain those forests. And the world has negotiated over climate. I've been a climate negotiator since the COP in Poznan in 2008, 12 years of my life lost to these negotiations. And we talk about red and we talk about carbon financing, saving the rainforests. And we've with the exception of Norway, we've done almost nothing to move that forward financially. There's, there's, there's been some progress in the negotiations. We cannot use international climate financing or handouts from the international community to preserve the Congo Basin forests. The, the forests of Gabon have to contribute jobs and livelihood to the Gabonese people. The, the Gabonese, my colleague ministers, have to see value in the forest if they're going to give me the resources to maintain them properly. I'm convinced that, yes, we need protected areas and national parks, and, and we may develop tourism in those, but we have to make the forest economy work for the Gabonese people, such that Gabonese people work to maintain the forests. The forest economy is a potentially sustainable economy that in all likelihood will continue to grow over time, because sadly many countries are destroying their forests and, and shifting to agriculture. And so a lot of what I'm doing as forestry minister is looking at how we use the forest to save the forest. We're going to save the forests of DRC, which are, we're losing to shifting cultivation. If we don't give them a different economic model, then it's just going to go. And so what is the economic model? The model is high value, tropical, precious hardwoods being combined with lower value, fast growing plantation woods, going into an international market in a context where there's a sort of a rubber stamp on our products that prove that they're legal, that they're climate sensitive, that they're biodiversity sensitive, and that they're human sensitive. And so that's, that's how I kind of link the forestry 
component and the conservation component, in my mind, in a Gabon's national strategy for forestry. Do you see that as a growing market, demand for finished wood products, timber products? Globally? It is a growing market globally, for sure, definitely. We think that for the lower to mid-range products, obviously there's a huge market in Africa that we hope will gradually become more interesting through the kind of continental free trade and, and through improved logistics and so on. But globally, there is a demand. But there's also a lobby against us. There's a sort of a boycott that's read, run by what I would call activists, conservation and conservation activists, but who are mm. arguing one should not cut a tree in a tropical forest because when you cut trees, you kill orangutans and chimpanzees and gorillas and so on, and, and you, you drive climate change. And so there is a school out there saying we should stop exploiting these forests and we should lock them up and keep them, which I can't, I just don't see how that can work, that cannot work. And I think those lobbyists are dangerous because if we find in 10 years time we cannot sell our timber products because the world is against tropical forestry and when I say forestry, I'm, I'm talking about sustainable, selective forestry that actually increases the carbon content of the forest and maintains much of the biodiversity. So in my mind, there are provisos. If there's a simplistic lobby against tropical forest products and the world stops buying our beautiful timber, I think the world is mistakenly condemning Congo Basin forests. But that's uh, it's a two-way street. If our forest products are subject to illegal logging, if we can't prove it's good for the climate, if we can't prove that there are still gorillas and chimps and elephants living in these forestry concessions, then, then obviously we can't convince the buyers. And so what we have to do is to move towards a reputation. It's about a, a made in Gabon, wood from Gabon, being something that's respected and being able to prove that that it is positive for all of those things. And so I want you to be able to go into a store in London and we'll be opening a high-end furniture store in London in 2021 to showcase Gabonese furniture. I want you to be able to go into that store and buy a beautiful dining table in the confidence that by doing that, you're helping to preserve biodiversity and you're helping to fight climate change. And, and, and so that's what we're working towards. Even our submissions to the UNFCCC, the, the climate change, we're about to submit a, a document describing all of our carbon emissions and carbon sequestration, proving that our forestry is currently carbon positive. And so we expect that there will be a sort of a UNFCCC validated report that, that will convince you that by buying that table, you can have confidence that it was actually good for the climate, even though uh, it was transported from Gabon the UK. We're even thinking about potentially offering you a year's free emissions to go with that table. So we'll offset the average carbon emissions of a normal European person when they buy one of our pieces of furniture. But that's a, that's a work in progress. And a holiday, presumably, in Gabon, in one of your ecotourism. Uh, uh, that depends which table you which buy. Which piece of furniture <laughs> you buy. Tell us, how's, how are your tourism plans coming along? Or have they been slowed down by pandemic? Tourism has been very slow to take off in Gabon. Every tourism specialist I've ever brought to our country has said we have great potential, whether it's Adrian Zecker who created a man, whether it was... Well, I've, I've seen it myself, the beauty of Gabon. 
I can testify it's um, quite outstanding. So elephants on the beach, you can watch elephants and humpback whales at the same time and get one which is unique. There's plenty of potential. But it's a greenfield investment for the first investors. It's tropical rainforest tourism in a continent that does tropical savanna tourism. It's a francophone country with francophone labor laws and so on and so forth. And we, uh, I think it's not actually justified, but, but we are very badly marked on doing business. And so it's not an easy country to, to come in as a, in a greenfield investment in, in ecotourism, because tourism works in circuits. And so you can't come in and build one lodge in, in Gabon and hope tourists in, you have to come in and build four or five lodges because you have to create a Gabon circuit if you really want to bring people here. And all of that is why it's taken us a long time. COVID came along with the point where we were planning a big heads of state summit to promote ecotourism investment, working with the Space for Giants. And so that has been pushed back by COVID. But COVID hasn't hit our tourist industry the way it has in other African countries because we didn't have it, the tourist yet. And we are actually, even though COVID has hit, we have one investment run by a group called the African Conservation Development Group, which is starting in Luango National Park, where you have these beachcombing elephants and surfing hippos. They're actually going ahead with their investment in country right now. Actually, they're in Petit Luango today looking at that site. And so in terms of timing, it's made their investment slightly more difficult in terms of logistics, obviously, but we are seizing this hiatus in the global tourism market to actually move ahead with investment in infrastructure such that ideally we will be part of the renaissance of the African tourism industry in, let's say, 2022. And so I don't think it's particularly impacted us negatively. Mm -hmm neither the tourism side nor the conservation side, where a lot of countries' conservation efforts are funded by tourism efforts. And so come out of COVID-19, obviously with a, an economy that has been affected just as all of the global economy has, but, but it's, it's not been so harsh on tourism. It might even actually be an opportunity for us in terms of tourism, because we can participate in the relaunching of African tourism, and we can perhaps put coming elephants and lowland gorillas in the, in the recovery. Yeah. Great. Well, that's very exciting to hear. I wonder if I could ask you to speak a little bit about your broader portfolio in agriculture and fisheries as well, because your portfolio covers the oceans. You've given us a very clear representation of the vision for the forestry sector. Do you have similar visions for agriculture more generally and for fisheries as well, or fishing? Yeah, we, we have big vision for agriculture. I'm, I'm not the Minister of Agriculture. I'm the Minister of Land and Land Use Planning, if you want. I then hand off to the Minister of Agriculture, who, who does the, the farming. In a certain way, I manage the ecosystem, and then he uses that ecosystem to promote farming agriculture. And we've moved forward with a big investment with Olam over the last six or seven years in oil palm. We've been very careful about putting that into low-carbon degraded forests or savannas to make sure that it's actually carbon neutral as an investment. And it's, mm. it's the only example of greenfield investment in palm in Africa that is 100% RSPO certified. So we're, we're, we're taking quite a responsible approach to where we do agriculture, we're being very scientific about it in terms of optimizing land use, planning in Gabon and integrating, obviously, all the things you have to do for planning agriculture, soils, geology, 
climate and so on, but also integrating into that carbon emissions and climate resilience and climate impacts. Because we currently import about 750 million euros of food every year. So there's even within Gabon, there's a big market for foodstuffs. And so we're very much trying to promote self-sufficiency in Gabon. And COVID-19 is, is something that has demonstrated to us, again, the importance of doing that. We're looking to promote more subsistence or, or semi-commercial local farming and more international investments in larger scale agriculture. Uh, but at the same time as maintaining the forests and maintaining the protected areas and, and so on. And so I work every day pretty much with the Minister of Agriculture on trying to get it right. Same thing with fisheries. He's also the Minister of Fisheries, Minister Biandi Aganga uh, Musabu. My ministry manages the ecosystem, and I joke with him that his ministry kills the fish. But we decide how many fish can be killed sustainably, harvested sustainably, and we're looking to develop our fisheries sector in the way we've developed our forestry sector. The most fished fish in Gabon is the tuna, two species of tuna. And over the last 30 years or more, they have been caught and exported without ever touching Gabonese soil, without ever creating a job in Gabon, and, and only contributing very small amounts to the Gabonese economy. And they've been processed and turned into high-value product off the Gabonese shores away from the Gulf of Guinea. And we now know that we have about 60,000 tons of tuna that we could harvest every year, and we could very easily service two tuna processing plants with 6,000 jobs and value-added. And so we're looking to do that. We may certainly, we're considering the idea as we did for timber, where we, we banned export of unprocessed mm. timber, why not ban the export of unprocessed fish and, mm. and push that industry onshore to contribute to Gabon? Fisheries stocks are suffering around the world. Fisheries stocks in the Gulf of Guinea have suffered terribly the last 20, 30 years. Our own fish stocks were plummeting until the point where the president launched his Gabon Blue program in 2013, and we've managed to reverse that somewhat still a lot to do. Yeah, we're doing a lot of work on how we make fisheries sustainable, how we rebuild our fish stocks. We created 20 marine protected areas just over two years ago, partly to preserve marine biodiversity, but partly to promote the production by protecting breeding grounds and so on, and to increase our sustainable harvest through a mix of careful fisheries management and conservation of key ecosystems. I think both agriculture and fisheries obviously are potential job and income creators. They're also critical for food security. Again, because of climate change, food security is going to become, over the next 30, 40 years, is going to become a bigger and bigger issue around the world and, and across the African continent. Yes, certainly. I think we've seen, in light of COVID, attempts to bring food value chains closer to home in every country on the African continent, I think, without exception. Yeah. I wonder if I could ask you one final question, please, Dr. White, on, on climate change. You represented Gabon in the Paris Climate Accord discussions. I don't know if it was your ink on the uh, document that Gabon signed, ratifying the, the agreement, but Gabon made a commitment to reduce greenhouse gases by by at least 50% by 2025. A big commitment. How are you progressing in terms of that commitment? We're doing okay. 
There's a slight nuance. We committed to a 50% reduction based on a what we call the business as usual model. So based on a projection of increasing emissions. I think we're going to hit that without any problems. But that business as usual model has been criticized because it's it's a model of the future. It's not something people can have total confidence in. So we are actually looking into strengthening that commitment even further to a, an absolute 50% cut. It might take us until 2030 to manage that because it, it means introducing a lot of new technologies and new management methods into the forestry sector in particular to get yeah. emissions down. But that we think through a combination of much improved, reduced impact, what people call real C, reduced impact logging, which is carbon sensitive, we can probably get emissions down from the forest sector by 50%. That means electrically powered lumberjack vehicles? No, it actually means being much more efficient in how you use the wood and, and reducing your damage levels. Making When you give a forestry employee a bulldozer and you say build a road, there seems to be this psychological thing that pushing over of trees gives to mm. be a sense of power forest that has been invading people's fields for generations suddenly disappears and so often the roads are much wider than they need to be often the, the skidder trails are badly planned often when you cut the tree if you don't cut it in the right direction you cut it in the right direction it only squashes three or four of the trees and you cut it in the wrong direction it crushes 20 30 other trees and so there are all sorts of mechanisms we can use to reduce the damage levels during mechanized logging. So we won't be using electric bulldozers for a while, I don't think. But what we can do a lot better in terms of how we log, slopes that we log and, and so on and so forth. Also, creating these plantation forests will add about 100 million, just over 100 million tonnes of carbon dioxide in savannah areas that currently are very low carbon. And so that changes the carbon dynamic somewhat. So uh, we are looking to be even more ambitious in our commitments. We are already absorbing four times as much CO2 as we emit. So, so whilst the rest of the planet is focusing on getting to carbon neutrality by 2050, Iran has always been carbon neutral. We, in, in 2005, we may have had a year or two where we became just very slightly positive. And since then, we've got it back. So we're highly carbon positive. And so the key thing is that we keep it that way, that we don't become carbon negative. In our Paris Agreement commitments, we didn't even talk about our absorptions of CO2. In our forest reference level that we're submitting to the UNFCCC, we, we compare the two, both our emissions and our absorptions. And I believe we're still doing the calculations, but I believe we actually are currently offsetting all of the emissions from our oil. So if you take yeah. all of Gabon's oil exports, and traditionally, when you export oil, we export oil to the UK, it's burned in the UK, and those emissions are associated with the UK's emissions, not with Gabon's. Well, we think that our global oil emissions from Gabonese oil are about 18 million tonnes of CO2 per year. We can easily offset that with all the CO2 we're absorbing, make our oil, our manganese, our wood um, carbon neutral. And to be fair, as you said in your introduction, I have a slightly unusual background for an African minister. I started my life as a European. I now have dual nationality, Gabonese and 
and British. So I have a foot in both camps in some ways. And when I go to the negotiations, people treat me like that. And for a long time, the developed world has been making promises about climate change and a billion dollars a year of funding for the Green Climate Fund by 2020. Well, we're in 2020 and it only has 10 billion in it. 30 billion fast start for the red process after Prince Charles hosted the, the G20 meeting in London. Well, that was 30 billion for three years. And maybe we've spent $3 billion in 10 years. So I feel that the efforts of countries like Gabon tend to go unnoticed. People tend not to, I'm not sure we should be rattling the trees and saying, you know, praise us, give us credit. But we are trying very hard to be serious about this. And other countries continue to emit CO2 and we don't. I said that that was the final question, but I wonder if you permit me to ask one more, because um to what, I'm interested to know to what degree those sorts of issues that you referenced earlier on, namely how the environment and, and the climate specifically in, in Ethiopia is impacted by how you manage the forests in, in the Congo Basin. To what degree are these sort of transboundary, transfrontier issues talked about and understood by your contemporaries, your peers on the African continent? And to what degree do you feel that Africa comes to these global negotiations with a more unified voice and, and proposition? I think, I mean, you have to look even beyond Africa in terms of does the world believe it when we, we say these things? Does the world believe that if we lose the Congo Basin, we lose agriculture in Egypt? And that influences, obviously, hugely Europe, the number of yep. immigrants who are moving into Europe. We certainly don't behave in a way that suggests we believe it, whether it's within Africa or whether it's globally. Some of the science is not very robust. Some of it is scientific theory. Some of it is scientific fact. There is a growing awareness, but as a rule, people are pretty naive about the medium term impacts of climate change, because if we weren't, we would be so much more engaged and active on these climate discussions. Is Africa united and, and speaking with a one strong voice? I think we're doing better. When we went to Copenhagen, we were divided. I sat in that small room in Copenhagen with President Bongo and we went to the heads of state and we drafted the Copenhagen Agreement and Africa was not united in that. The African group of negotiators are stronger and it just so happens that we are currently chair of that group, but it's, it's not something new. It's been getting stronger and stronger over time. Time. But Africa is a very varied continent. You have desert countries, you have rainforest countries, you have industrial countries, you have you have countries living in a subsistence economy mostly. You know, it's a challenge that the issues South Africa or Egypt have, and not necessarily the, the issues that Sierra Leone or, mm. or or Gabon have. And so it takes time and it takes leadership at a presidential level to, to bring countries together. And then think climate change could be so bad for the world that many of us are in denial about it. And um, for, for politicians, I am now a politician. We are renowned as a race that have a horizon, kind of a maximum horizon about five years ahead of us. And for this climate issue, the real crunch is going to come, I would predict, in 30 years, 20 to 30 years. How many African politicians have a 30-year horizon? I'm lucky to work for one, President Bongo, who does have that long-term vision and is 
putting a lot of his energy into climate change. He's the champion for the African Adaptation Initiative. And he actually reads and understands the science. And there are more and more leaders maybe like him that, that get it. So I'd say our voice is getting stronger, but we have a lot more work to do. It's good to hear. Perhaps slightly more encouraging is I think we've seen momentum from capital, from money, in terms of reallocating towards projects which have a contribution towards net zero. And there's been leadership from the EU, particularly in the context of building back these economies post-COVID with the, the building back better strategy, which has a heavy, heavy allocation of capital to renewable energy and to, to, mm-hmm. to green growth projects. So maybe as more and more capital is directed towards these sort of net zero uh, projects, that um, African leaders and African nations will, uh, will wake up to the opportunity that that represents in terms of their uh, economic growth ambitions. And the combination of more enlightened leadership and more capital will get us towards those climate change targets or emissions reductions targets that you pointed out are so important for, for the planet. Well, thank you, Dr. White. It's been a pleasure to listen to you and to, to speak with you. Um, and thank you for, for this education and congratulations on all the work that you're leading in Gabon and contributions you're making to all these global climate courts. You're welcome.